0: Check out Heritage Radio fifteen to donate and enter to win today. That's Heritage Radio fifteen to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March thirty first. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. Started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I said I liked you, I That's when it got wheels off. Lauren Gruff is a novelist, short story writer, a poet. We find out during the course of this interview, and she's just so brilliant. Oh man, this is. Easily one of my favorite wheels off interviews I've done. And I've really, as perhaps you might know, if you've listened, I've really loved all of the interviews I've done for Wheels Off. Feel incredibly lucky to have spent the last two years interviewing people for this crazy little thing of mine. But Lauren Groff, man, the the way she's able to communicate the intricacies of her process and her sort of philosophical beliefs about the nature of art and the nature of creation, her incredibly useful, detailed thoughts about writing, writing prose, writing poetry. This is a great half hour, and I'm so excited that you get to hear it, and I'm so excited that I get to be a part of it. I'm really grateful to Lauren Groff for joining me I recommend to anybody, read all of her stuff, but specifically her most recent novel, Fates and Furies, which is just incredible. So please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Lauren Groff. Welcome to Wheels Off, Lauren Groff. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Wow, this is truly an honor. I'm so excited. For the edification of our listeners, where are you joining us from?
2: Gainesville, Florida, in the in the middle of a gloomy day. So I'm happy to be talking to you.
1: That's so funny. So you wound up in Gainesville, Florida, even though you're a kid from the Northeast, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, it was um, very much against my will. I did not want to be here. But like, eventually, I came to love it. It's fine. It's great. It's good.
1: <laughs> That's so funny.
2: And you're, you're up in New York right now, yeah?
1: Yeah, I'm in the Hudson Valley, where we've got two feet of snow on the ground, and tomorrow they're predicting another six inches.
2: So I miss snow for about 10 minutes, and then I'm so happy not to be around it. I don't I don't envy you right now,
1: for sure. Yeah, I'm a seventh-generation Texan, so growing up in Texas, we had snow twice, and um, it took me 10 years to even get okay with this.
2: I hear you. It is, you know, I've been in Florida for 16 years and I'm not okay with uh, the summer, the humidity or anything. So yes, yes, I get it.
1: Um, So what creative project are you working on right now and how does it light you up?
2: I'm working on so many. So I tend to work on multiple at any given time. And some of them, and some of them are very, very rudimentary or, you know, I'm still just sort of moving my way through them, feeling in the dark. Um, but the one that I'm working on right now is uh, I've got a, a book coming out in September and then another one next year, hopefully. Um, and they're not, it's not a series. It's not a trilogy, but there are three books about women um, in different periods of time. So the first one's from the 12th century. The second one's from um, Jamestown in the early 17th century. And this one is a contemporary one. And it's all about Women and climate change, and the way that religion sort of got us to where we are now, and God, and you know, it's just a lot. It's a lot. They're sort of speaking like whales under the surface. They're not really, they're not overtly related, but they're very much in the same family.
1: Oh my God, that sounds fantastic. And, and I know from, hearing you talk about this stuff before that on any given day, you may or may not jump to another project or two that you kind of have running concurrently.
2: Yeah, no, I have multiple stations up in my little room upstairs that used to be where, um, my second son, it was his nursery uh, so it sort of has like baby dreams, sort of like jellyfish scooting along the wall. And, (laughs) um, so it has like a very warm and loving kind of atmosphere to it, but I have multiple areas of this, um, this couch where I like take my naps and cry. And then I have, you know, like like a little stand over there and I've got this giant long desk I had made as soon as I had my first uh, uh, advance. I got one of my neighbors to make this huge long cherry wood desk. And so I have four or five different stations uh, with four or five different projects on it.
1: Oh, that's brilliant. So you don't have to change anything. You can just roll your chair to a different spot or move to the couch to work on, like if you're working on the short stories or you have an idea for some random other thing. Yeah.
2: Well, and I think it's psychological, right? Well, it's definitely psychological, but I think that um, it's kind of important to be in the space that most speaks to the work at hand, right? So with Fates and Fairies, my, um, my last novel a lot of that I wrote from my bed just because I was so scared of what I was writing that that was the one safe space for me to write it from. Um, but uh, a lot of times, you know, I'll write from the downstairs couch because my children are upstairs right now on at school all day long and they are so loud. And it's yeah. so annoying. <laughs> to come all the way downstairs to just sort of escape them. Uh, yeah, but it's, I think it's really important for to get into the right mind space to have a, a specific place for each uh, project.
1: It's funny. I spoke with Harlan Coben about this. I love
2: him. We went to the same college. Oh, yes. Am- Amherst. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Wow. He was there. He was his. He was sweetmates with David Foster Wallace.
2: I know. How how bizarre is that?
1: I know. <laughs> He told a great story about one of his first classes where he had to write a paper. He um, he asked, David, they were walking back, and he said, what did you get? And he said, I got an A. And he said, can I read it? And he said, after reading his paper, he was like, okay, I don't, do not belong at this college.
0: <laughs> and that's
2: so wild. Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny. So, I mean, I... I don't I'm not going to say I saw similarities between Fates and Furies and um David Foster Wallace's work, except in that once I had gotten to the end of it, I had a hard time conceiving of how you could hold all of that in your head. Like how could you keep all of it straight and and not just like plot stuff, but like the character stuff? And I wonder, I, I mean, I don't know. there's no question that I can ask you to explain to me how. <laughs> You did that. But I wonder, like, for instance, you said how terrifying it was for you as you were writing it. And um, and I realize that some of our listeners haven't read it. But like, what 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 about that book specifically was terrifying and made you write it from your bed? I, I, was it the was it the was it Mova? Was it the the character of this kind of terrifying, vindictive mom? Was it yeah. the secrets that these people carried around?
2: Well, I don't think it's giving too much away because it's only, it comes halfway through. But yeah. um, the yeah, the story is told in dual perspectives. The first one from the point of view of um, a man named Lotto. The second one um, from the point of view of Matilde, who is married to Lotto. Um, and Lotto dies halfway through. And I think so, um, recently I've been writing into my fears, right? Like, all of my anxiety, my um, despair, <laughs> All of, all of my, my angst in the world, it becomes this great big cloud and, and I can't see anything but it. And so I, I try through my work just to look as deeply as possible into this cloud and try to, to pick out things. And I think one of the fears is what happens if my husband dies? You know, we've been together since college. You know, we met as undergraduates. Um, he does the taxes, right? I mean, there are other reasons why I don't want him to die. But, like, <laughs> just like, like very, but it would be horrible, right? Like the, the person who has kind of um, been, he's me, but better um, if he were to die. So I think that part alone freaked me out. And, and I wanted, uh, I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't cathartic in any way. Because I don't think of fiction as actually a cathartic act, but it was an act of trying to make myself braver. Um, But that in turn, it's like, you know, trying to go off of a high dive if you are um, afraid of heights. Um, it takes a lot to get up there, to get up the ladder, right? So I think that that's sort of what I was doing with that book in particular.
1: And maybe the reward when you do challenge yourself to do something that terrifying is that much greater than it would have been if you'd done something easy.
2: Oh, for sure. No, no, no. The easy books or the books that I think like are easy are never the ones that actually end up being published. And I have probably... <laughs> Five to six un- unpublished novels hanging around that I don't think I want, or nobody wants to read them for sure. No, not, not nobody. Yeah,
1: it's, this has come up a lot with songs uh, in these interviews, when the idea that you have to write through the bad songs and just oh, get yeah. them out because they, they at some point they're going to come out, so you might as well just get it over with. Get it out there, yeah. Tougher I mean, with novels.
2: Blocking your energy, right? I'm mm-hmm. not. I don't know if i believe in all that i mean i've had acupuncture before and i liked it it was nice to be like pinned um but i i'm not i don't know if it did anything for me but i do believe that there is creative energy and it can get blocked by the pro- project if you're not like actively trying to, to look at it or to think about it or to put your hands on it for sure
1: Oh, I just realized that I derailed myself a moment ago. Um, so the, what I was going to say about Harlan was that he had, uh, discussed his, the latest book he had written. And, um, one of the things he said was that, like, he usually writes longhand. Every once in a while, he'll write on a computer. Like, we were t- doing that discussion that I'm mm-hmm. sure everybody wants to know. How do you write your stuff? And, um, I know you write a lot of longhand, but he said that, like, he started taking an Uber to and from, his apartment in Manhattan from Jersey and writing in the backseat of a car as he was driving across like the George Washington bridge. And I love, but I, but I love that. I love the idea that like, even just moving to a different spot, like you were describing within your own home or Michael Chabon talking about like, he likes to write on his laptop, but a lot of times he'll just go write on his iPad or sometimes he'll write in a tiny notebook. And, but maybe it's, and it reminds me of Bob Dylan describing when he and I, I did not interview him for Wheels Off. Um, when he's stuck <laughs> on a yet. song, he'll move. <laughs> not yet, he'll move from guitar to piano to unstick himself. And I wonder sometimes if it's just like mechanical changes like that can sometimes unstick you.
2: Yeah, right. You have to break yourself. Um, I think the the creative process is is often a process of breaking the things that you think you know, the things you think you know how to do. Um, right, the the Leonard Cohen line, "The cracks of the way the lights get it," the, an anthem or the the crack. Oh, I don't know. I don't memorize things. Um, but. Um, it, it's, it's true. You do sometimes just need to, to look at the way that you've been doing things. And if it's not working, then reconsider or work on index cards, for instance, that's one of my tricks too. you know, if I, if I can't, uh, I feel like the big page that I lot, that I generally love is too intimidating. I'll work on index cards and that'll get me through things
1: too. Yeah. Not as a way of outlining, but just as no. a smaller.
2: Yeah. Piece. A unit. Yeah, it's less uh bewildering to think about filling up uh, an index card and then it also it um it forces the paragraph that you write to be uh, it uh, it has a lot of energy in it, right? It it just it forces the the small space um almost is it acts almost like formal poetry. It forces the the words into a form that they wouldn't otherwise take, I think.
1: God, I love that. It reminds me of something I've heard you say before which is that you approach your prose like poetry.
2: Yeah, well, I started as a poet um and I'm not a good poet, but I I stole a lot from poetry for Yes, yes. Um yeah, yeah, you know, and I and I think that poets have it right in almost every way. They just um haven't figured out the way to get paid. <laughs> but but <laughs> In terms of being artists in the world, I think that they're—it's not like they're pure, but they—they get it right. Like a poem is this discrete object that can be worked on continuously until it's done. and a collection of poems is, you know, 100 poems long and they all interplay. And I think that sometimes when we think of fiction, we think of big slabs of words as opposed to the way that all of those paragraphs and all those words and all those chapters have to interlate um, and the way that they're all um sort of in process of taking each other apart, even as they're being built, which is a thing that I think that poets do really, really beautifully. Right. So I, yeah, I admire the heck out of poets. I read so much contemporary poetry and um, poetry of the past is like my favorite thing. Um, yeah. You, you just steal, you steal as much as I mean, not actual words, right. You don't plagiarize, but you do, you take I, the, the the way that people work. Yeah.
1: Homage and, and inspiration.
2: Homage and inspiration, or, um yes, yeah, mixing.
1: <laughs> and I'm sorry, I don't know if you can hear, my dog is freaking out. Little Ziggy C- never can't. barks. Okay, good. No,
2: you've got really good, uh, like a sound system going on. That's Okay,
1: really so um you talk about w- having started as a poet, and I know that you were, um and this, these aren't your words, they're mine, but I know that you were some version of a world-class athlete.
2: No, that's definitely a- not world-class. My <laughs> sister did, not me. No, oh, no I
1: didn't yeah. you also swim competitively or something? Dive? Yeah, I
2: was, and I, I swam, swim, I played soccer, I ran, and then in college I did um a uh, crew, I, I rode.
1: Okay, but it's your sister that's really yeah the, no yeah she's the one. outstanding. Yeah. But I, I guess what I guess my question and what I really love to hear about is sort of the the genesis of it for you or where you first realized that you wanted to do something you wanted to traffic in words. You wanted to be a writer. Was there like an epiphany moment when you were a kid where you where you just knew this was it?
2: Um I'm afraid of people just <laughs> in general. And I think um back when I was a kid, my my dog is now freaking out. Um back when I was a kid I um, would escape from social situations by reading, right? I mean, I think that that is a fairly general thing for a lot of writers. Um, and I, the, the one epiphany moment that I can identify was when my friend Lisa session gave me a book of, uh, Emily Dickinson's poems, which are so complex and, and like intense and complicated, but they seem simple on the surface, right? Because She doesn't use, um, you know, a lot of like large words. She's, um, her imagery is as close to the bone. Her, um, punctuation is eccentric. You feel like as a 12 year old, you could do that. Right. Like, despite the fact that she's an absolute genius. Right. So I was copying Emily Dickinson for a long time, um, and I thought I was a poet. And I got to college, and I um, I couldn't get into any poetry classes for like three years. And I finally got into a fiction class, and that was the, the fiction class was where I feel like my longing um, and the world itself sort of met uh, there because I was reading finally contemporary writers, and I was reading not just dead men because I right, which is what my entire schooling up to that point was because I I'm, um. I'm a dual major in English literature and French literature. And so I basically never read past like 1960. And suddenly here's Grace Bailey. Here's Laurie Moore, right? Here's Alice Munro. Here's Toni Cade Bambara, right? All of these amazing, relatively contemporary women. And I I thought, oh my god, right? Maybe I can't do it the way that they're doing it, but it's not impossible as a way of life. and after that, I, you know, I graduated. I was a bartender. Um, my first day as a bartender, there was a, a double homicide in my bar. Oh, um, yeah, which is awesome. Not, not at all. It, and it was Philadelphia too. So they didn't even shut down the bar. <laughs> <just kept> going. <laughs> it gets worse. I was actually in the tiki hut. Um, with a, an Eagles cheerleader who was the most beautiful single human I've ever seen in my entire life. Like she had no pores or anything. She was sort of like the figurehead leaning out into the crowd. As, as it, and then someone died. It was horrible. Oh. Um, and then I eventually went to grad school. Um, to, to be able to devote all of life to this one, um, proceed not procedure, but this one art, one thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
1: Boy, it's funny that you said the word procedure, but I, I actually, I, I like that as a word for what you do. Well, hearing you describe before your, um, your process of like writing a whole thing out longhand and then not looking at it and writing another draft and another draft. And I keep trying to imagine doing that and talk about holding it all inside your head. How closely do those drafts? line up i mean are they completely different pieces of work
2: absolutely no they don't they they bear maybe a family resemblance but they're not at all i mean the characters names change right the form changes the um the structure changes everything changes the plot changes Uh, and the reason why i I do that, and I write longhand. Is because well, I can't read my own handwriting on purpose, right? I'm trying <laughs> very, very hard uh, to allow failure into that first draft, and then um, the next draft. I sort of remember some of the things, and but I have a much, much firmer grasp of the fundamentals, right the 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 foundation of the work. The um, uh, the, sort of the, the way that the plot should be, I have even scenes that I've written in the previous one that won't be in this one. But what they do is they, they give to the next draft sort of a resonance or a feeling as though there's life lived off the page, which is what you want from a novel, I think, yeah, or yeah. a story, right? You want to feel as though the characters have other lives in other rooms. And we're just seeing, uh, this one selected. Short term in their in their lives, I think. Um, yeah, I I mean, I love I love the process. It took me a really long time to get here, and I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. But I do, and I don't always do it right. And sometimes with other projects too, I, um, I I either get it on the first draft, or I absolutely need to write it in some other way, right? Either by index cards or on the computer or something else. Um so it's it's all about the way that the book itself needs to be written and I only know that by failing desperately on the first one intentionally badly.
1: <laughs> um so you said earlier that you don't believe uh that writing or the act of creation is um what was the word you used that you said Catholic. it wasn't cathartic okay or um but I I wonder because it has come up so often um in these discussions like um how much therapeutic value it has um and i also wonder for you as you've um you know gotten to the point where you're at now like you must have dealt with a number of and maybe you haven't maybe you're the one person that hasn't but you must have dealt with a number of sort of internally generated obstacles like the 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 voices in our head that tell us we're no good you know the anxiety it's come up a lot about like um I don't know, a uh, success guilt or imposter syndrome. And I wonder for you how you've managed to find a way around these things above them. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I would love to hear you interview someone who's like, yeah, no, everything's great. I, I've never had an obstacle. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's human. Maybe, maybe they're just not human. Um, um I so way back when when I first had my first book out I I never thought that I was going to publish anything to be perfectly honest I was kind of astonished by the entire process when art something that you've held so deeply inside of you for so long um suddenly becomes a product and enters into the um the world of capitalism um everything changes right and it becomes it feels gross a little bit and it feels almost as though you're you're turning your back on this gift that you're given It, it just every like commerce ruins everything right so I had this um horrible um breakdown and I have a breakdown every book that comes out it's just like like part of my process um But I had this breakdown until I understood that I had to do something that's probably going to seem pretty weird to some people, but I I split myself into two people. Um, And there's one person who's the artist. That's the person who's like the sensitive, like live nerve. And um, then there's the persona. And the persona is the shell. The persona is the one who gets all the attention, who gets all the criticism, who um who has to go out into the world and talk about the work right but it, but the artist is protected from all that and just by creating this this psychic split, um, the dualism between um, this tender nerve and this this hard hard shell um, has made it feasible for me to actually be an artist in the world because otherwise it would kill me and I would I, I truly don't think I would I would be able to survive the publication process.
1: Wow, this is so great to me. I, I've never heard anybody put it like that, but I've seen that something like that in action with friends of mine, bandmates of mine, myself in music. It's that there's a four month window between uh, mastering the album and the album's release, during which all of the reviews start to pour in, and it's yeah, and it's crushing, and the, even the anticipation before the that's. Commerce is, would you say commerce, commerce is evil? Commerce ruins art. <laughs> oh my God, that makes, well, that makes well, me so yes, happy.
2: What we do is part of the gift economy, right? And if we're lucky, we get paid for it. But that as soon as money enters into everything, everything gets a little bit dirty. And so how do you reconcile the gift economy with the actual economy? And I have not I have not learned how to do it other than to, to, to split the soul into two um, discrete
1: bits. So I've never heard that phrase, the gift economy. Is that, that's not that what we do is somehow gifted between people. It's that what we do is based on a gift that we were born with or given or something, right? Well,
2: no, I, it's been a few years since I've read the book, but there's a book called, um, The Gift by, um, Lewis Hyde, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. And it's magnificent. It's about creativity, basically. And, um, one of the things that Lewis Hyde, uh, promotes, um, talks about in his book is that, um, when you're given something, um it you need to give it back out into the world, right? It's a it's a continuous cycle. And um, that's what creativity is, I think, in a very real way. You're taking things in and but you're always having to constantly put it back out into the world. That's what a gift is. Um, and the more that you put things out into the world, the more you get to take into in. So you're you're not being greedy, you're not being um it, it's like anti-capitalist in a very real sense. There are no artists real artists i believe sitting on hordes of ideas right they're not like 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 dragons like pulling towards themselves all the doubloons and the you know the stanley cup um <laughs> instead right it's just a constant um uh, sense of putting things out there putting giving away um blurbing doing what you're doing right now which is an act of giving right so you're you're putting a podcast into the world in order to help people through creativity right that that's a gift your music is a gift so i believe this um but the, the, the it's a, it's a, it's horrific to to bring everything else back into it all of the the just dirty Um, capitalism back into the the creative economy at the same time, artists need to be paid. We need to send our kids to school, right? I believe we should all be paid. And so I don't, if you have a good way to reconcile all of this, uh, I would love to hear it, but I do not for sure.
1: No. And one thing that's come up over and over again in the two years that I've been recording these interviews is that when you Um, are in the process of creating something and you are calculating what your audience will want and even worse, what they'll pay for. Mm. um, It ruins the thing you're doing. Like it puts on it, the stench of desperation of calculation. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. I haven't figured it out. Obviously my profession was gutted uh, like 15 years ago by file sharing and streaming services, Um, I do think there's still something that's sacred about novels that people really believe in. Mm Um, God, I wonder about, you know, I, I think about my friends that write that have been lucky enough to have stuff get, um, optioned. Mm -hmm. I thought about that while reading Fates and Furies, like trying to imagine the movie that it would make.
2: Yeah. Someone today, I was on a phone call with a guy who's like, that is, it's completely unoptionable. Like, it cannot be filmed. <laughs> Nobody would ever succeed in making it into a movie. And there's part of me that's like, well, there goes my first year of college for my firstborn. And then there's the other part of me that's like, thank God, right? Like, I don't want someone else's vision sort of swallowing up my my book. Um, so it's, it's, it's very ambivalent. Uh,
1: you know, though, I mean now we're really off the topic, but I could imagine like an eight part series and I could, I could see the way it would work. I, but the, it's what you talked about earlier when you, the way to succeed in doing and making something that people love is by creating characters that feel real, that they care about and they love. I had a thing happen to me with, with Fates and Furies, where when I got to the end of Lotto's section, I almost didn't want to go on and read Matilda's section because I was like, you know what? I like Lotto so much. I'm on Team Lotto. There's no way this is this is going to disappoint me. And then, of course, I got to the end of the book, and I was, and I was on Team Matilda.
2: So, so good! I'm so glad. I, I, I'm happy that you made that shift. That's
1: well, the, no, not really. There's no team. I was just so no team. I was so glad that I you know but it's funny because it's that thing you care so much about these characters and in the end that's that's how something succeeds um oh my god i'm so glad i honestly right now i mean we're not finished quite yet but <laughs> this, is, this is i feel like the most useful maybe even just for me because my secret dream is to write long form
2: i know I'm so excited to read your novel. I can't. Will you? Will you let? Will you let me read, <laughs> it? Will I read it? You know when you when you're ready.
1: I I I recently framed. Um, one of my early heroes was Elmore Leonard. Yeah. Um, and I I I corresponded with him in the mid '90s. Yeah, because his daughter was a fan and I had name dropped him in a, uh, on a record. And so I wrote him a letter and I sent him a copy of a newspaper article that I'd just written and he wrote me back and I just framed the letter Aww. he wrote me. But Aww. it's funny because the little paragraph at the end says, Oh, and by the way, I should tell you right now that I don't read manuscripts because if I ever started, <laughs> I would, I would never have time for anything else. And in, in any way, it's work. So yeah, the fact that is- you're offering, I will, oh. I would never take you up on it, but
2: please do. I mean, I know you have other friends, but like, if I could be an I, I would love to do that. Oh my God.
1: Okay. Well, vice versa. I'd love to be a reader. If I ever
2: play music, (laughs)
1: Um, you you don't want to hear that. No, this is great. So you, you and I both have the thing of um, uh, an upstairs filled with kids who are doing remote schooling and constantly um, seemingly in need of our um, advice, but they never also, never seem to want it. So, yeah. but um, but it does always make me think about what advice I would give them if they wanted it. Um, so I'm wondering what advice you might give a 21 year old version of Lauren Groff in today's world. Um, what advice you might give her?
2: It would be advice about um, gentleness to the self. Uh, in order to create anything good, you just have to be kind. Um, you can never talk to yourself in the way that, um, you do, <laughs> like I do, right? Um, I think, um, understanding that things, good things come really slowly in the creative life. You need to have patience, um, and persistence and, um, not to give up. I think that some of the most talented writers I have met uh, just stopped writing. Uh, And it's the difference between, I think, a published novelist and a non-published one is just attrition, to be to be totally honest. I think anyone has can write a book doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good book, but maybe the first Book is not going. It shouldn't be a good book. Maybe the second one shouldn't be. I mean, I've got tons of thrown away books. It's fine. It's fine to do that because each each project that comes out, um, had to come out uh, in order to get you to the project that will be shown in the world. So just be gentle. Um, and to do the thing that I didn't know at, um, at, well, I did know it at 20. I didn't know it when I first I was a, thought I was a writer, which is that um, artistic practice really is like practice, right? And it's coming out of athletics. Um, if you take two weeks off, it's really hard to grow those muscles back. So just touch the work every day. It uh, doesn't mean that you have to, you know, write for three hours every single day. I know it's really, really hard, particularly with kids everywhere. But if you're just engaging with the work, thinking about it, um, rereading it, uh, you know, like changing a comma, right? it doesn't take that long to do. But you're, if you're touching the work, the work will trust you back, uh, in, in sort of a, Again, it's making me sound like a spiritualist, and I don't necessarily believe this, but I do believe that um, the artist and the work uh, exist in a sort of um, tension. And if the artist maintains and shows fidelity, the art will turn around and show the same thing back. Um so so doing it every day and being patient through the the dark times knowing that um everyone has them fallow times for fields are good fallow times for art is good these are all important things that i would say to lauren of 21 years old
1: oh my god that's so great but do you ever take breaks do you i mean i, I know you just said not to but then you said fallow times sometimes are good
2: so my breaks look like this. So um, I will go upstairs. I, I work every day at five just because that's when nobody needs me. Um, and I, uh, I will try to work. Uh, and there are times when I absolutely cannot get a single word out on the page. And uh, this is a normal thing for me. So what I do then is uh, I read because reading is also work. Reading is also writing as long as you're you're reading intently and for and with multiple levels, not just pleasure, which I, I believe in firmly, but also in terms of craft and in terms of um what you can what you can take and put into your own toolbox. So uh, there have been years and not just like a single year, but multiple years where I have gone up every day, sat down with my notebooks and my pens and cried and then read for the next however many hours I have. God. That's fine. That's fine.
1: And you, fine, and, fine is essential. And you survived those.
2: Yeah, you survived them because eventually the words will come back, and you have to. And uh, you know, it 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 is. Uh, I think artistic process is um is is fueled by faith in a certain way, secular faith at least, uh, where you just have to have faith that some someday you'll create something that you're proud of and that that uh, that will light up something in other people. Yeah. God, I have to believe this.
1: Well. I got to say, this has been incredibly inspiring, and I'm so grateful that you sat down with me today. Thank you so much.
2: I I love talking to you again. You're the most (laughs) generous human being. It's just really (laughs) lovely and fun. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Well, I can't wait for the next book, and um, go make sure that those kids are okay. I'm going to go do the same thing, And, uh, and good luck today. I hope the words come.
2: Oh, thank you. They already have. Thank (laughs) you. In the morning, 5 a.m. All right. Thank you so
1: much. Oh, my God. 5 a.m. I'm sorry. You said five. When you said five, I thought it was 5 p.m.
2: Oh, Uh, no. I get it. No, no.
1: (laughs) That's brilliant. Okay. Excellent.
2: It's a nobody needs me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lauren. Take care. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Thanks, y'all. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Revenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now.